0: I don't have like a specific study that I can cite to back this up, but I feel quite confident in making this statement that the 1980s was the greatest decade in the history of the world. All right. Okay. I, I, th- I thought, I thought that some of you would be with me on that. And I know there are many, many reasons for this, but but, I, but but some of my favorite things about growing up in the 80s, I mean, you got, you know, uh, all of the aerosol hairspray uh, that was, you know, things like that. But um, man, we have, we have some really good TV shows in the 80s. Really, really. It was a great run. Maybe the greatest decade ever. Uh, let me see. Let me just say, if, if I know we have a lot of you today that weren't born prior to or during the 80s. And and uh, I'm gonna talk about some things that are unknown to you. And let me just say, as I do, I am so sorry you missed it. I am so sorry, but we had some great shows. Like, see, see if this rings a bell. Uh, the Facts of Life. Anybody remember The Facts of Life? Oh, that was a good one. Uh, Family Ties. Family Ties was good. Um, this is a good one. The Golden Girls. Oh, all right, all right, all right. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the most popular sitcom during the 80s, uh, Cheers. Right? Uh, Any of you watch Cheers? Okay, three of you. Um, Magnum P.I. Uh-huh. I heard you ladies out there. Tom Selleck. Okay. Uh, The Cosby Show. Yeah, that was huge. Big show back then. Uh, Full House. Full House, yep. Forget the one dude's name, but he was a dude. All right. Um, Growing Pains. Anybody remember Growing Pains? All right. How about these? There's some big ones now. Dallas. Oh, yep. Little scandal in there. Some of you like that, right? Little Ewing oil. All right. How about this? Come on. The Dukes of Hazard. Just some good old boys. Okay. All right. Here's a question. Do any of you have a horn on your car that is the General Lee horn? Anybody here today? No. Okay. Now, if we were at. Jason Millsap's church, our lead worship pastor, who's from Knoxville, Tennessee. You see, it'd be like half the room, you know, the Dukes of Hazard, baby, that was a big one. I loved that as a kid. And then uh, how about Knight Rider, speaking of cars, any Knight Rider fans out there? Come on. Yeah. Okay. So David Hasselhoff, calm down people. And then of course, I tell you, I have to, one of my favorites as a kid, it wasn't Dallas, it wasn't Knight Rider, Dukes of Hazard wasn't as big. It only ran for four seasons, but the A-team. Come on, the A-team. Mm, mm, little Mr. T. Oh man, B.A. Baracus. Everybody remember B.A. Baracus? Now, for those of you who are not a part of this greatest generation, uh, let me show you a picture here of the A-team. I pity the fool. That wants to mess with that group right there, all right? You got like three losers in Mr. T. It's kind of how that works. Three total weirdos in Mr. T. And uh, when I was a kid, like having multiple necklaces was the thing, man. That was the thing. Then it went out of style for a while and I noticed it's coming back. It's coming back. Mr. T.B.A. Barakas, he was the dude and the A-team was a super cool show. I'm amazed it only ran four seasons. Okay, maybe not the best writing, but, but during those four seasons, it was pretty cool. And here's what the show was about. These four guys were uh, US Army, they were a part of a special forces unit and uh, they had all been kind of wrongly convicted and they were trying to, um, you know, clear up their names and they were based in California and they're doing all these missions and taking on all these special things. And man, they were awesome. I mean, there's explosions and more explosions and, um, and then Mr. T, that was kind of what it was all about. And it was this special operation group that were doing all these amazing things. And it was incredibly popular. Like, that's what I wanted to be a part of. You know, I'm like, man, to be a part of the A-team, you know. But I was never part of any A-team. Like, I was never picked first in the kickball game at school, you know. Like, this became a catchphrase, didn't it? Like, if if you were part of something great, it's like, oh, man, that's that's the A-team right there. You know, that's still kind of a thing today. Like, some of you are like, oh, yeah, A-team. It actually goes back to Mr. T. It goes back to B.A. Baracus. It became a catchphrase. Yeah, you're part of the A team. Special elite group. You're the best of the best. And so if I were to ask you, all right, think about this. If I were to ask you, all right. So what's the best hope today for the church to accomplish its mission in the world? I think a lot of people would say we need an A team. You know, that makes sense to us. We need an A-team. We need like a special operations unit, like seminary trained, missionary trained, qualified, prepped. Like, man, if we just had like a collection of elite men and women who are educated, trained, qualified, experienced, man, God could work in a great way. And I would tend to think that way. That's kind of how we're wired to think about everything else in the world. Like if you really want to get something done right, you need an A team. But here's the unique dynamic of what you and I know as the church. God's working in the world in such a way. Here's what we have 2,000 years of evidence. Speaking to... Here's what the scripture says. God's ways of working in the world is to use the weak to shame the strong. To, um, t- to take what's average and ordinary and do some extraordinary things. God's way of working in the world is not your way or my way of working in the world and actually the way God has chosen to work in the world, the way God has chosen to accomplish the mission, the way God has chosen to spread revival is through an A team. But can I give you some good news? The A team is sitting right here in this room. It's all of us. Average, ordinary people filled with extraordinary power, doing extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. You see, this is kind of... Um, like like, anti-American almost, right? Like how, 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 how could God really work in our community to multiply the mission and the movement of which we are a part? We just think, man, we need more trained people, more PhDs, more missionaries and all that. And we need those people, don't get me wrong. But, but that's actually not God's plan A for reaching the world. You are God's plan A for reaching the world. The A team is all of us as average, ordinary people filled with extraordinary power, doing extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. This is how Jesus built the A-Team from the very beginning. Let me give you kind of, if I were to use modern titles for the A-Team that Jesus put together, let let me use some modern, because there's no Mr. T. (laughs) There's no one wearing a bunch of gold chains. Let me tell you who Jesus used when he put the first A team together, you ready for this? He used small business owners. He used commercial fishermen. He used IRS agents. (laughs) He used politicians. He used pastors. He used blue collar people. He used white collar people. He used educated people. He used uneducated people. When Jesus put together the A team that was responsible for leading this mission and movement that's now 2,000 years old, he put together a collaboration of people who were average and ordinary, but who were filled with extraordinary power and who were carrying an extraordinary message of salvation you and I know is the gospel. You see, God's plan A for reaching the world is right here. You and I, are God's plan A for reaching the world. And and I wanna talk with you today about what it looks like to be on the team. Because maybe some of you like me were never picked first on the kickball team that you were a part of, right? I have good news for you today. When you commit your life to Jesus, you turn from your sin, you turn to his righteousness and his salvation. You commit to follow him as Lord all the days of your life. Here's the awesome thing you're on the team. You're on the A team. You are God's plan A for reaching the world. And from the very beginning, going back to the calling of the very first disciples, this is absolutely God's plan. And so if you have a copy of God's word, I want you to go with me to Luke chapter five. All right. Take your copy of God's word. Go with me to Luke chapter five. We're going to see some profound truths about the calling of the very first disciples. Now, as you're turning there, I want you to understand the context of this. Jesus was just recently baptized. He just recently launched his public ministry. He is now going about teaching and preaching. He's healing. He's demonstrating that he's the son of God and he's the Jewish Messiah, right? So Jesus has now launched his public ministry and, and he encounters a man named Simon Peter not long after he launches his public ministry, and don't think, oh, oh yeah, Simon Peter. No, no, no. He was just Simon Peter. He was just a nobody. Graduated, eh, the bob in the middle of his senior class, didn't go to college. He did what his father taught him to do. He fished for a living. He was a commercial fisherman, had a small operation with a few of his friends. He's just Peter. Are you with me? He's not our Peter. He's just Simon Peter. And and on one occasion, Simon Peter asked Jesus to come to his house And to heal his mother-in-law. Let let me just show you the context here. Stay in Luke 5, but here's Luke 4, all right? After leaving the synagogue that day, Jesus went to Simon's home where he found Simon's mother-in-law very sick with a high fever. Please heal her, everyone begged. And so standing at her bedside, he rebuked the fever and it left her and she got up at once and prepared a meal for them. Can I give you a good word? When Jesus heals you, you don't go to rehab. When Jesus heals you, you don't go to physical therapy. You are healed immediately. There's no recovery time. You're fully healed. So she gets up. She, she, she prepares a meal. Like, I mean, there's just this rejoicing. Can you imagine? And so, of course, people hear about this. Watch what happens next. As the sun went down that evening, people throughout the village brought sick family members to Jesus. Of course they did. I would too, wouldn't you? Hey, he's four houses down. And he just, I, just, I heard he just healed Peter's mother-in-law and. So now all these people are showing up from all across the community and, and, and check out what happened. So no matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed every single one of them. Now this is radical because according to Jewish custom, you were not allowed to touch someone who was sick. It would make you unclean. Jesus is like, no, no, no. I'm the one who makes all things clean. So Jesus didn't just heal them, he touched them and he healed them. And and so this is kind of at the beginning of his public ministry and word is spreading and people are amazed. And and notice what happens not long after that. Okay, now we get into into Luke five, check this out. So one day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, it's really like, it's really a lake. Don't think, don't think Gulf of Mexico. This is, if you've ever been just a, it's a, it's a freshwater lake. It's uh, not huge, but it's the largest freshwater source there. Uh, in, in the region. And so Jesus is there as he often was at Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, and great crowds were pressing in on him to listen to the word of God. And he noticed two empty boats at the water's edge for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. The fishermen are not introduced to us at the time because they're nobodies at this point. They're nobodies. And so stepping onto one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, same Simon, whose mother-in-law was just healed to push it out into the water. And so he sat in the boat and he taught the crowds from there. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, all right, now let's go out to where it's deeper. You boys come with me and we're going to let down your nets and we're going to catch us some fish. Now watch what Simon says, master, we, we just came in after working hard last night. We didn't catch a thing, but if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full that they began to tear and a shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. And when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh Lord, please leave me now. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. This is just too much for me to take in for he was awestruck by the number of fish that they had caught, as were the others with them. His partners, James and John, also nobodies at this point. The sons of Zebedee were amazed. And Jesus said to Simon, hey man, don't be afraid, for from now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed back on the shore, they left everything and they followed Jesus. They became some of the very first members of the A-Team. Here's what it means to be a part of the A-Team. I encourage you to jot this down. God uses average, ordinary people to change the world. That's who he uses. And I want to I want to point out a couple of things here about what occurs with Simon. James and John with respect to what it means to be a disciple, because here's my encouragement to every single one of you today. To follow Jesus, to give your life to him, to be a disciple, to join the A-team. Let me show you what this means. Okay, first of all, just jot this down. To be a disciple is to follow in faith. It's not to get a PhD. It's not to have some kind of specialized training per se. Let me tell you what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Here's the first prerequisite for you to be a member of the A-team, okay? You've got to just follow Jesus in faith. And you follow Jesus in faith and you give him your life and you trust him with who you are and what you have. And you're on your way to being a disciple. You're on your way of being a thriving, effective member of the A-team. You see, to be a disciple is to follow Jesus in faith. Now, let me take you back to verse five and show you the faith that Simon Peter employs. Jesus says, all right, boys, we're gonna head back out into the deep water and we're gonna do some more fishing. And Simon there says, look at this again. He says, "Um, Jesus, with all due respect, I know you're a carpenter and you have carpenters training, Uh, I've been a fisherman my whole life. I know the water. I I, I know the trade. I know the craft. Dude, look what he said. We've worked hard all night. Dude, we've been out there all night. We've just been working to clean our nets. I got my boats cleaned up. I brought them in, ready to go home and get some rest. Um, With all due respect, I I don't think this is going to be very effective. We just came in after hours of doing this, caught nothing. But then look at this. I think a better translation here is not but, but because. Lean into what Simon Peter says here. This is not Simon Peter. This is just an ordinary dude, a fisherman. He says, but because you say so, I'll let the nets down again. He had no tangible reason to go back out in his fatigue and fish. He had no human reason to take Jesus at his word and get back out there. But he knew enough about Jesus through the healing of his mother-in-law and the healing of these other members of his community to know that Jesus was not an ordinary person. And so leaning into what he had seen up to this point, he says, okay, but because you have said so, I will do it. And, 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 and listen, that is absolutely profound. Peter's willingness to follow in faith, even when what Jesus was asking him to do made little sense. So there's a couple of things I wanted to show you here in Peter in particular. Okay. Under this heading of following in faith, what does it look like? Well, first of all, listen, I, I want you to understand that following in faith means that sometimes your feelings are going to be incompatible with your faith. You ever felt that? H- have you ever had certain feelings or frustrations that are inconsistent or incompatible with your faith? Peter was in this moment right there. That's why he says to Jesus, dude, um, I don't think you understand what's happening here. We just came in, we caught nothing. You're asking me to go back out. He actually expresses his feelings to Jesus before he exercises his faith. But amazingly, he still exercises his faith. And this is a reminder to us that there are times in our lives when our feelings are incompatible with our faith and we have to decide, are we gonna lean more into our feelings or more into our faith? Can I keep it real with you? There are are times when persevering in your marriage when it's problematic is gonna require you to lean more into your faith and your feelings to get where God wants you to be. There are gonna be times when you've gotta hold on to hope when life is handing out hurt. And you've got to choose if you're going to lean into your faith or lean into your feelings. There are times you've got to make a decision with how you're going to steward what God's entrusted to you with your resources. And you've got to decide, are you going to take him at his word? Are you going to set aside from the first fruits of what you earn to give to the ministry of the gospel? Or are you just gonna tip God whenever it's most convenient for you? And you're gonna have these feelings of, um, yeah, I don't know that we can afford to do what God has commanded us to do. I don't know that we can afford to give out of the first fruits of what we earn. And you're gonna have to decide, are you gonna lean into your feelings or are you gonna lean into your faith? And my wife and I can tell you, that God operates with different math than we do. And when you cultivate generosity as the first fruits of what you earn, it's amazing to see how God provides more than you need, but your feelings will betray you. Hey ladies, can I ask you something? Is it worth dating someone who is immediately available to you but not biblically compatible? Your feelings are telling you that it's better to have someone than no one. Your feelings are telling you, oh, I'm sure as we continue to date, I mean, at some point he's gonna trust in Jesus. Hey, how about he trust in Jesus before you ever consider dating him? How about you align your eternities before you think about aligning your lives? And you're gonna have these feelings. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to lean into your feelings or are you going to lean into your faith? Hey, guys, as you're traveling, ladies, as you're traveling for work, seeking to maintain your testimonies when others seek to compromise your integrity, are you going to operate on feelings? You're going to lean into your faith. You see, there are literally hundreds of decisions that we make throughout each and every week that communicate whether or not we are living by our feelings or living by our faith. And there are moments where we say, well, God, this doesn't make any sense. And God, I don't know why you're asking this. And God, I'm not sure about this. That's where Peter was. Peter's sitting there in the boat saying, Jesus, dude, we just came in after being out all night. But then he says with remarkable faith, but because you have said so, I will do it. And he leaned into his faith over his feelings and it changed his life. Let me give you a little second takeaway about faith here that we see in Peter. God tests us in the little things before entrusting us with the big things. Now, now listen to me carefully. There is no way in that moment that Peter could have understood all that hung in the balance with that decision. If Peter says to Jesus based on his feelings, hey dude, I'm not going back out there with all due respect. I'm tired, I've already cleaned all my nets and I already organized my boat, I'm going back in. There's a lot of other people here I'm sure to go out with you. Listen to me carefully. We would not even know about him today. If Peter had leaned into his feelings over his faith, if he did not trust God with the little thing, We would not know anything about Simon Peter with the big thing in terms of him being one of the disciples and one of the founding members of what you and I know as the New Testament church. We would not know him as an author of the New Testament. We would not know of him as one who literally turned the world upside down. But because Peter trusted him with this little thing, Jesus later trusted him with the big things. And that is so often true of you and me. Listen to me carefully. You never will know in the moment, what hangs in the balance as a result of your obedience. In the moment, you might think it's a little thing. In the moment, it, it, it might feel like, um, like, 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 like just, just an average ordinary thing. In the moment, it might be a very difficult thing for you to do. I just want you to hear me loud and clear. You don't know what hangs in the balance with your obedience. And when you elevate your faith over your feelings and you obey God in the little things, here's what's coming. He's gonna then entrust you with the big things. I'll just give you a real world example from my life. I would not have the honor and the blessing and the privilege of being the pastor of Belshoals Church if over 20 years ago, my wife and I had not put our yes on the table and gone to the Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Harrisonville, Kentucky. A church not even named for the community in which it was located. (laughs) A church of about 50 people, a gravel parking lot in a big cemetery in the back. People used to say to me, now, you know, pastor, people are just dying to live next to the church. (laughs) That was a, they, they thought that was funny, you know. And I'm not kidding. I got this random call one day. I was a seminary student. Um, I was just working odd ends to make ends meet. My wife was teaching at a Christian school and we were just living on love and I was going to school. I got a call from somebody I didn't even know, said, um, hey, there's a church about an hour from campus out in the country. They need somebody to supply preach for them on Sunday. Would you be willing to go out there and preach? I said, absolutely. I I'd preach anywhere, you know? So I went out there and preached. This little church, 50 people, gravel parking lot. I'd never seen anything like it. And uh, as we were leaving that day, somebody came up to me and said, "Uh, hey, uh, what's your name again? I said, my name's Corey. Oh, yeah, 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 Corey. Uh, You got anything going on next week? You think you can come back and preach again for us next week? I said, absolutely. I'd be honored to come preach. Okay, why don't you come back next week? You preach for us again. All right, I came back the next week, preached again. They said, hey, uh, you got anything going on next week? No. All right, why don't you come back? I preached three weeks in a row. At the end of the third week, they said, hey, uh, You got anything going on like for the next year or so? uh, Would you like to be our pastor? (laughs) I never pastored before. Sure, I talked to the pastor search team, met with the pastor search team and I don't mean to brag or anything, but I mean, they were like, "Uh, you got a pulse, right? (laughs) Yeah, okay, you're hired. All right. Off we went. Man, my wife and I were so happy, so excited. We moved into this little rinky-dink parsonage that was falling apart. And um, our first two children were born there. I was doing my education. I was still working side jobs to make ends meet. We were on WIC. Uh, we, my kids were on state health insurance. Um, man, we just, uh, you know, we just loved those people. They loved us. Uh, we just, man, we just had, I don't know, just a sweet ministry there. We loved it, you know. Learned a lot. Now we weren't fancy or anything, don't get me wrong. We didn't have any worship teams. We didn't have a student ministry. We didn't have a kid's ministry. (laughs) Here's how we did worship ministry. Um, We we had this pianist named Sis Coleman, who was a chain smoker and grew up playing in bars. (laughs) And we had a song leader. Anybody grow up in a church with a song leader? Am I talking to anybody today? All right, we didn't have a worship pastor. We had a song leader who was a a great layman family in the church, been there forever. And here's how that worked. He was also the Sunday school director of our Sunday school class, okay? Which meant he sat downstairs in the basement during the Sunday school hour and he picked a few songs out of the hymn book and he walked upstairs and he gives Sis Coleman the, the numbers of the hymns we were gonna be singing that day. That's all that went into it. And I would walk upstairs and I'd, I'd walk up to the front of the church. There would be Sis Coleman. Oh, how my wife and I loved Miss Sis. And she'd be there and every Sunday she'd greet me. Good morning, Brother Corey. <laughs> I said, good morning. I am not exaggerating this at all. I said, good morning, Sis. What are we singing today, Brother Corey? Well, it looks like we got amazing grace. Oh, amazing grace again, Brother Corey. We got to sing something else. Well, I don't choose the songs, Miss Sis. Off we go. Amazing. There we go. That was it, man. 50 people. I tell you, I can't wait to see Miss Sis Coleman in, in heaven one day. I mean, I just can't. I mean, I'm going to be listening for I'll be walking around. Brother Corey. Oh, I'm going to know who it is. I can't wait to give her a hug. Boy, we had some sweet memories. 50 people. You know what my least favorite Sunday was? The Sunday after Easter. Do you know why? We still have those little attendance boards on the side of the church. Y'all remember those? Right? Bible read, Bible brought, attendance. And then I hated this. I hated it. Attendance last Sunday. And we grew to have over 100 people on Easter. And then the Sunday after we had seven. (laughs) And there it was up for everybody to say, well, last week we had over a hundred, you know, and I hated the Sunday after Easter. You know what our budget was annual? For those of you who aren't good at math, that's yearly. Okay. $50,000, not a week, a year. And God taught me to pastor that little there, that little church. Sweet people. My wife and I love them, miss them. Now here's my point. True story. I had... Friends of mine in seminary, they they didn't. I know for a fact they, they wouldn't even consider going to pastor a church like that. 50 people. Getting your groceries through WIC, kids on state health insurance, living in a rundown parsonage. Dang, I'm just telling you, I, I talked to them, I know. People, they wouldn't ever go to church like that. My wife and I found that offensive, if I'm honest, because I thought when we committed our lives to the ministry that we would go wherever God called us to go. And now let me tell you something very, very clearly: This is not an overstatement. This is the truth. I would not be who I am or where I am today if not for Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Harrisonville, Kentucky. And here's my point to you. You don't know today what hangs in the balance of your obedience to King Jesus. What seems like a small thing today or an average thing today or an unusual thing today might produce a type of fruit in your life that changes the trajectory of it and or your family. This is what we learn with Peter, dear ones. Do you see it? That to be a disciple is not to be a super Christian. It's not to have a PhD. It's not, no, no, no. To be a a member of the A-team is to follow by faith, a faith that trumps your feelings and a faith that is faithful in the little things so that God can entrust us with the big things. That's what it means. And then secondly, here's what it means, to be a disciple, not only to follow in faith, but secondly, to abide in all. To be a disciple is to abide in all, and I just want you to see that when, when Jesus actually goes out there with them, the, 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 you know, the, the fishermen, just, the, they're not, again, they're not even the disciples yet. They're just these average, ordinary dudes, Peter and James and John and the others. When Jesus goes out there with them, and they start hauling in the fish, like literally it's breaking their nets. It's like bending their boats and they're just amazed by this. But here's what happens when Jesus really starts working in your life. You, you're less focused on what he's doing and you're more focused on the glory of the one who is doing it. And that's where Peter's like not focused on the fish. He's focused on Jesus. And and the scripture says he's literally awestruck by what's happening. And and James and John were also amazed. And, And here's what happens. When Jesus starts working in your life, you really see him for who he is. You start leaning in to his power and providence. You start leaning in by faith to his will. Man, he will change your heart, he'll change your disposition. And and, and there ought to be this ongoing awe that we carry as followers of Jesus, that we get to be the children of God. And you know what I think the problem is with a lot of people who are Christ followers across the country, we have just forgotten this awe. We take it for granted. We start focusing on secondary things. And I'm telling you, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you follow by faith and, 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 and you continue to abide in awe. And let me challenge and encourage you. Maybe some of you have been Christ followers for 50 years. Don't you ever get over what Jesus has done for you. Don't you ever get over it, right? Come on, don't ever get over that. Because when you have this kind of awe, it will manifest itself in obedience. It'll manifest itself in a faith that follows because you're like, absolutely, this seems unorthodox or this seems a little bit contrary to my feelings, but I believe that my Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. And he can. You see, when you start leaning into the life-changing power of your Jesus, All these temporal things like nets full of fish have less appeal to you. You know how I used to sing it as a boy growing up in church? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Do you remember this? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? To be a member of the A-team? You follow in faith, abide in all. Lastly, jot this down. You surrender in submission. Put your yes on the table. Put your surrender on the table. Let me just remind you of how Simon Peter did that. Don't think, oh, Simon Peter. No, let me show you how this at the time Totally rando, common, average fisherman did it who happened to be named Simon Peter. Jesus said to him, "In Simon Peter is all, don't be afraid. Hey, you know what? From now on, you're gonna come with me. You're gonna be on my team and we're gonna fish for people. Now watch this, verse 11. As soon as they landed, they left everything and they followed Jesus. Hey, don't just read past that. They just brought in the largest haul they had ever seen. Nets overflowing, worth in our economy, I'm sure, tens of thousands of dollars. Hey, listen, I love to fish from time to time, okay? If I catch one fish, I'm dancing. Okay, I can only imagine trying to do this for a living. You just come in after an all-nighter where you catch nothing and now literally you have seen something you've never seen before and that no one's ever seen before and you've got tens upon thousands of dollars that's gonna help your family and send your kids to college and you get back to the shore and you leave it all behind you. Don't just read past, they left everything and followed Jesus. Look at the situation on the ground. Because these initial disciples, these first members of the A-team left everything to follow Jesus. You know, they died largely penniless. They died without a lot in their 401k. They died without any accumulated wealth. But you know what else they died with? No regret. They didn't die with a lot of resources, but they also didn't die with any regret. And I'm not saying you have to take a poverty vow to follow Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, come on, lean in here. You will never miss the fish you leave behind when you choose to follow Jesus. You won't miss it. The world says you can't do that. No. No. You can do it. That stuff's not coming with you. Some of that stuff is gonna bring regret. Can you imagine if Peter had said, no, Jesus, I'm going in, dude. But he followed in faith. He was abiding in awe. He surrendered in submission. He put his yes on the table and he never missed the fish he left behind, let me say it one more time, because God uses average, ordinary people to change the world. That's what he does. And you don't know today what hangs in the balance in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your future, if you'll surrender to Jesus. Put your yes on the table For some of you maybe today commit to follow him, turn from your sin, turn to his salvation. Ask him to forgive you, confess your sin. Receive his salvation based on his substitutionary death and his bodily resurrection and commit to follow him all the days of your life. Join us here in our next wave of baptisms as you publicly profess him, he'll change your life. As a follower of Jesus already, many of you need to get in the game. You need to be encouraged today to see that God uses average, ordinary people to change the world. All you need to do to be a member of the A-team, right? As a member of Christ's family is to follow in faith, to abide in all, to surrender in submission. Just put your yes on the table. God will use you. He'll use your testimony. He'll use your family. He'll use your resources. Listen, that's the beauty of what you and I know is the church. It's not about any one of us. It's about all of us doing it together. All of us fulfilling our role. All of us playing our part. And all of us have a part to play. I'm gonna tell you, there's no greater joy than putting that yes on the table because you don't know what hangs in the balance. If you say no.